Bobby told me he was going to move this mic out of the way. That's all right. Well, it's good to be here uh, amongst friends uh, and brothers and sisters in Christ this evening. And, and so what I'd like to do this, this evening, it's hard to get out of that morning habit. Uh, I'd ask you to stand with me and uh, open in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, but before we jump into our text, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. So pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we, we worship you. It is our unique privilege as the body of Christ to do so and to come because of the blood that was offered on our behalf through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, Father, we are grateful that we can be in your presence as your people. Lord, speak to us uh, this evening through your word. I pray that it would have its good effect in our hearts. And Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. And uh, we just thank you for everything. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we will be in Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 4. This is uh, the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. And so as I said, it's good to be able to come together and fellowship as the greater body of Christ. And now this evening we're going to be looking at just a little portion of this, probably the most awesome book in my opinion in all of scripture, the book of Hebrews. And so what I would like to do before we get into the text this evening is to take just a few minutes and set up for us the context, a little bit of this passage, and that involves a little bit of uh, background work. Now, I know most everyone here is familiar with the book of Hebrews. I know you've read it many times. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Bobby preached through the book of Hebrews uh, a while back, I think. Uh, And so we won't spend too much time here, but let me just introduce you to a few key themes and and things that we need to be mindful of as we move forward. First, as you may know, the book of Hebrews is not explicitly a letter in the classic sense of the Greco-Roman letter writing like the epistles of Paul or Peter or John. It lacks most of those characteristics that would make it a letter, and instead it bears the marks of a sermon and if you were to continue on in Hebrews, you would clearly see, that, that it, see this in the way that the writer makes his arguments. And then he'll support those arguments with Scripture and then bring those arguments to bear in the lives of his hearers who were primarily, likely, Jewish Christians with some God-fearing Gentiles mixed in. And it's impossible to tell. And truth be told, it's really incidental to our study this evening. And so this group of believers... We're coming under persecution and pressure to turn back from the simplicity of their faith in Christ and to return to their former way of life. 
And now understand that this presupposes that the original audience had a knowledge of the background of, uh, of the Old Testament scriptures and practices, which is crucial because it's this knowledge and this background that helps us to understand the arguments that are being made and makes the purpose of the sermon uh, of the preacher of Hebrews even that much more clear. And that purpose is twofold. And this is the purpose, I would say. First and of primary importance to the writer is simply this, to lift up Jesus Christ in all of His superlative glory and present Him as superior in every single way. And second, in light of that all-encompassing greatness of Jesus our Lord, these believers were to persevere in the faith, to hold on to what they confessed. And we see this summed up in what I think is the high point of his argument. Jeremy might disagree with me. Uh, but I think the high point of his argument and, and the application is, is really chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And this is what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted." So that is a a very quick background on the book of Hebrews, which now leads us to our text this evening. And and what I want to do right now is uh, what I will uh, sometimes do is is give you what we call the bluff in the military. The bottom line right up front. And it's simply this. The point of our passage this evening, and it has broad implications that work their way all the way through the rest of this book. And the point is this, that in Christ Jesus we have the definitive and final revelation of God to man. Let me say it again. In Christ Jesus, we have the definitive and final revelation of God. And we'll see that laid out for us in what many call one of the most uh, finely crafted sentences in all of Scripture, as the writer really introduces us in summary form to really the, the, the whole rest of the book. In fact, if you were to summarize all of Hebrews... The whole rest of it, you could do it with just this first four verses. And he does it in a distinctly Old Testament way by portraying Christ for us as the fulfillment of all of its types and shadows. He is, in fact, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate king, and the ultimate priest. And this is, in fact, how we're going to break down this passage this evening as well. As we look to Christ, the prophet, in verses 1 through 2a and then to Christ the king in verses 2b through 3a and then finally to Christ the priest in 3b through verse 4 and so with all of that said I'd like to ask ask you to turn with me in your Bibles and and follow along in Hebrews 1 1 let's begin to look at the definitive revelation to us in Christ as the true prophet and so beginning in verse 1 it reads Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, 
And so now beginning in earnest, I want to make a few preliminary observations to get us going here. First, when we come to the text of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1, we are immediately confronted with something startling. And it's this truth that we have a God who spoke. Now this may may seem obvious, and in fact many times we take it for granted, but understand the radical implications behind just that statement, that God spoke. The God with whom we have to do is, is not a God who, as the deist would say, has created the world and then, like a giant clock, has wound it up and, and got it going only to step back out of the way and be uh, uh, impersonal. And he's not like the Greek philosophers who claim when they say that the, the uncaused cause is unknowable because that uncaused cause is so completely other than creation that the gap is insurmountable and therefore we can never really know the Creator if there is a Creator. On the contrary... What we see here is that this living God is a relational God who, though He is completely transcendent, meaning that He is really and completely, utterly unique, utterly beyond anything created, anything that that we could even imagine, He is a God who reveals Himself. And we see that from the very beginning of the book. Remember that it was from nothing that God spoke and everything that is was created and He made man in His image and revealed Himself to Him. And so that's the first. We're confronted with the fact that we have a God who spoke. And second, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, but verse 1 here is an absolute affirmation and acknowledgement of the inspired and infallible nature of the Scriptures themselves. So think about why this is the case. Verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And we're going to look more closely at at this as we go. But the writer of Hebrews is making an absolute claim that all that we find in the Old Testament, spoken and written by the prophets, who were the men who, who gathered those scriptures together, were in fact God speaking. And so you can forever put away the notion that this book that we read and study, this powerful, living and active word, is just the work of men. The the self-attestation of Scripture is this. It was God who spoke. And so these are the presuppositions of this sermon. There is a God who speaks, and He has done so. And we have that word. And so now let's dig in. So long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. And so understand what the writer is doing here. He is establishing for us a very distinct contrast. One, in fact, that will be the basis for the entire book. And so first, let's consider the biblical view of history, because this is the the first contrast. In the biblical worldview, you come to find that the writers divide up time between the current age and the age to come. And the notion of of various dispensations, which has been the predominant teaching in the Christian churches from the mid-1800s until even today, is really a foreign concept to the biblical writers. And we see this here. The writer's taking us all the way back to the beginning, long ago. And he's bringing us through the history of God's revelation to man. And so from that time, long ago, in many times... 
God spoke, the implication being that as the history of the world has progressed, so did the very revelation of God to man. And you can trace this through Scripture, right? It's, the Bible's recording is, is the recording of those times for us as God reveals Himself progressively. And Hebrews 1 also says now that it was in many ways that God spoke, meaning that there was not just one set pattern that He used. There were numerous manners that God used to, create or to communicate to man. If you were to simply survey the Old Testament, you'll quickly find that sometimes God spoke directly to people. Other times He revealed Himself through signs or through judgments. Other times it was through the preaching of a prophet or through symbolism and parable. Even at one point, talking through a donkey. And it was this speaking in many different times and through many different ways that God revealed Himself and His will to man. But the undeniable truth that we see here is this. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And we need to acknowledge that and and hold fast to that. What we have in Scripture is the record of God speaking, and we have to treat it in that manner. But now I want you to see the great contrast that he's about to put forward. So he spoke in many portions and in many ways through the prophets. But in verse 2 he adds this, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And so first remember the biblical view of the ages. Here the writer makes the very certain case that we are in fact in the last days. In effect, marking the division of all of world history. And you may never have considered it this way, but you can mark all of world history into these two different epochs with Christ as the pinnacle of all of world history. He is the very dividing line between long ago and these last days. And the implications are clear. As the body of Christ, we must understand that the last days are now. We're in them. They aren't some far off future events, but they began with all that surrounded Christ's first coming. And they continue even today until all things are brought to their final culminating end. And the implication of it should be very clear, friends. The message of the book of Hebrews, and this is what I think you can pull from this, the message of the book of Hebrews is still our message. It belongs to you and it belongs to me. It's not something long past, but it is the ever-present condition of the church until Christ returns. And so understand that and hold fast to it. Second, I want you to notice here the contrast that's being made. Before, God spoke in many times and in many ways, but in the last days, what was many is now brought to a singular pinnacle. In other words, all of the various times that God spoke previously and all the various ways that God spoke have now been brought to their end. In the ultimate revelation of God to man, singularly found in Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ, we have God speaking, not in the shadowy or typological ways, but plainly and clearly in Christ Himself, who is the purest and most clear expression of God's revelation to man. And and as that expression, He is the final revelation of God to man. And I want you to think through what this means for us. First, Christ is the only way to the Father. Friends, in these last days, God is speaking through the Son. There is no other way. 
And so you can put away forever the notion that there is some sort of validity to the various religions of the world. They are not all equal, and only Christianity, only the faith in Christ do we have the final revelation of God to man. God is speaking through Jesus Christ, and apart from Him, there is no other revelation to be had. He is the very capstone, God in the flesh. And second, I think you can put away the idea that you need something more. And this is something we, we confront uh, many times, especially uh, in our part of the world. We, we need something more. Uh, this is the notion that Pentecostalism or, or charismaticism would, would lay before us. The idea that what we have is not sufficient. We need something else. That yes... We have the Word of God in all of its splendor, and it is indeed God speaking, but we still need something more to make it real to us, to make it relevant for us. But friends, what they're trying to do is go back under the old economy of God speaking in many times and in many ways. But why do we want to go back when we have the revelation of God from the prophet of God, Christ Jesus Himself? And I want to point out to you that there's not something missing. If you read Scripture, you will notice that in the totality of Scripture, we have the beginning and the end laid out very plainly for us. There's nothing left for us to get. And so when we attempt to seek after some further revelation, what we are in essence doing, uh, whether we know this or not, is denying the very sufficiency of the Scriptures, the very sufficiency of the revelation of Christ to His people, But friends, if we have Christ and His revelation of Himself to us in the pages of the Bible, which is complete, then we have everything we need for faith in life. And the point that I'm trying to make to you all is this. Don't don't fall for the trap of any system of teaching that would proclaim that you need something else. And they're usually the ones that are going to provide that something else to you at a small fee, of course. But friends, Christ is faithful. Christ is sure. He is the prophet of all prophets. In Him, God is speaking even now, and in Him we have everything we need. You can absolutely trust the Scriptures, and you can absolutely know that in them you have all that you need. That brings us to the next office of Christ. Christ the King. Verse 2 continues, "...whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world." He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And so verse 2 continues with the proclamation that in the Son, God has delivered His final revelation because there is no revealing of God that goes beyond that revelation of Himself in the Son. And because of that, quoting from Psalm 2, He has appointed the Son heir of all things. If you look at Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, it says this, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so now understand, friends, that it's not as if, uh, as we'll see in just a moment, that Christ in His very nature has become an heir. For we know that, that Christ in His very nature is God. He's the second person of the Trinity who existed from all eternity. 
before anything that was, that anything that is was created and who in fact was the agent of creating all things. And yet in his role as the Son of Man, the second Adam who faithfully lived in righteousness in every way, in complete obedience to the will of the Father, he was in all of his works declared heir of all things, the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. And to be the heir of all things is in fact to be declared the King And that is confirmed to us in verse 9 of Psalm 2 as well, which says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so in the Son, we have the King of kings who, who by His virtue of His righteousness and His obedience to the Father rules the nations with a rod of iron. And we see this in verse 3. And it reads, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And so now I want to break this down a bit further. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This is a reference to the very Shekinah glory of God. So in Christ we have in invisible form the very glory of God made known. And so when you gaze upon the face of Christ Jesus, it is as if you are gazing upon the very glory of the triune God. A little glimpse we get in the, in the transfiguration in the Gospels where Christ is shown to be who He is in His very essence. The writer of Hebrews continues that Christ is the exact imprint of His nature. And so all that God is in His very essence and being, when you look at Christ, it is as if you are seeing the very imprint of God. And now I'm going to use an illustration. And and many times when we use illustrations or analogies, they they fall short inherently. But I'm going to use it anyways. If you think about making cookies, and I know that's an odd illustration to use when we're talking about the glory of Christ and God. But you're making cookies, you roll out the dough and then you take this cookie cutter and you mash it down into the dough to make the cookies uh, of the, take on the shape of the, the actual cutter itself. Well, that, that's a similar concept to what the text is talking about here. In Christ Jesus, you have the nature of the triune God pressed down, if you will, into human flesh so that when you see Christ, you are seeing God incarnate, God in the flesh. And the text then adds, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And I want you to grasp fully the reality of what this text is saying. This is nothing less than the writer of Hebrews acknowledging the very deity of Jesus Christ. And the point is that this Son who has been appointed heir of all things is not just a man. It's not as though he was a normal guy who at at some point uh, was doing so well that God decided that he was going to go ahead and adopt him as his son and then make him his heir. No, Christ is the creator and it's by him that the universe itself is held together. And so very much like the prologue to the Gospel of John, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so in the same manner here, the writer of Hebrews is making the statement that in Christ, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, you have the very one who holds together the universe, the very imprint and expression of the glory of God. This is at its very core expressing the fact, the undeniable fact, 
that Jesus Christ is God. And it's adding all the more to the many revelations of the Christ in the Old Testament. But we need to grasp the concept here that truly when we see Christ, we are seeing the true King. And now that brings us to the last section, Christ's priesthood. Verse 3 continues. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so now we've, we've seen that Christ is the, the true prophet and he is the ultimate revelation of God and he's the true king, having been appointed heir of all things, which encompasses all of creation which in fact he upholds by the power of his will. And now we see that Christ is the high priest. And now whole chapters of the book of Hebrews will be devoted to each of these roles of Christ. But I think it's important to note here that in the priesthood, we have a a designated line of men. We're talking about the earthly priesthood, who by their very nature of their choosing by God have been proclaimed holy. In fact, if you took the... the, uh, the, the headdress, the, the turban of the, the high priest, it said, holy to the Lord on the front of it. And so they have been proclaimed holy and have been claimed, if you will, for service to God to act as intercessors or mediators between God and His people. And they were, uh, they were that. And now I said earlier that the book of Hebrews is all about the superiority of Christ as the definitive and final revelation of God to man. And we see that here in his role as priest. He representing his people before God. And now again, like I said, this concept is what really the rest of the book of Hebrews is about. So I won't go too far into it. But let's look at what we can glean right from these first few verses. It says, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so understand that, that in the Aaronic priesthood, as they were serving in the temple, they never sat down in their ministry. And that's because it was never finished. They were never done offering the sacrifices that they were offering. It kept on. And, and, and there's several reasons for this. We see that in them they were sinful in and of themselves. And likewise, their sacrifices were never designed to truly take away sins, were they? This is why, as the writer of Hebrews explains later, that they offered them over and over and over. But the ministry of the Son so far exceeds the ministry of Aaron that Christ, as the high priest, when he offers purifications for sins, does the unthinkable and sits down at the right hand of the Father. This is a statement about not only the validity of the priesthood and intercessory work of Christ on behalf of his people, but it's also about the very nature of the work of Christ. He offers his sacrifice, which is a perfect sacrifice, one time offered. And then he sits down. The Aaronic priests were never seated. In fact, tradition holds that they had bells sewn into the hymns of their garments so that, uh, as the tradition would say, that, that they would be able to hear that they were moving within the temple, uh, within the Holy of Holies. But the Son has no need of this, does He? Since He offered Himself His own sacrifice once and sat down acknowledging that it's complete, it is done, and He is again the heir of all things. It's truly a a comprehensive statement of the identification of Christ. 
And as I said, this statement in these first few verses is kind of an umbrella as an outline of what all the rest of the book of Hebrews is about. But now we need to finish off the statement of verse 4, which says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so keep in mind that this is all one sentence, which should cause us to ask what the connection is here between Christ as prophet, king, and priest, and his being superior to the angels. And this is where we have to begin with those Jewish presuppositions. And it's one of the ways that that we confirm this idea, because in the Jewish notion of the Old Covenant, angels were, in fact, the intermediaries of the covenant. In other words, as the Old Covenant was given, it was given by means of angels. And in Jewish thought, the highest of that angelic manifestation was the angel of the Lord. Now, we're not going to go down the road of of the angel of the Lord this evening, but I do want you to see that what we see here is that Christ is as superior to angels as the name He was given is above theirs. And clearly, this is a reference to the fact that in Christ Jesus, we're not dealing with just an angel, just a mere messenger of the Lord, but with the Lord Himself. And though, as we'll find out in If you were to go forward in in this book, he was in his incarnation, in his taking upon himself human flesh, made for a little while lower than the angels. That is not now the case, for Christ has proven himself worthy. And the sacrifice that he has offered has been vindicated. It was accepted, and he was raised from the dead, and that because he's not a lesser created being, but is in fact the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And so to boil it down to His essence, what the writer of Hebrews is saying in this very first sentence of the book is this. Christ Jesus is the final word from God. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He is the last and final sacrifice of the last and final great high priest who offered His sacrifice and sat down at the right hand of God. And to boil it down even further, in Christ we have the revelation of God brought to its final end. And when you look on the face of Christ and you consider the gospel, you have God's final answer, which needs nothing added to it, period. To put it in modern terms, if, uh, if we were going to do what we should do, it would be to take this mic and you see how they all take the mic and they drop it. Well, in Christ Jesus, we have the mic drop of all mic drops. Because there's nothing left to say. Everything, literally everything, has been said in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now let's bring this to a close. And I know it's a little bit artificial since this is really what the rest of the book of Hebrews is going to do, but but let me bridge the gap for you, if you will, a, a little bit. So what, what does this mean for us now, here and now? Well, as I already said, we are in the last days just exactly as these believers who were the original recipients of this book or sermon, the same way they were. And in that respect, when we read the revelation of Christ here and the implications to this early congregation, as I said, this is written every bit as much to you and me as it was to them. And it means the same thing to us as it meant to them. 
And now this is speculation, but this may in fact be why the Spirit didn't include the writer and the recipient and the location of the, of the letter, right? This is a universal letter, and it's to us. But leaving that aside, what are we to take from this brief introductory sentence of the book of Hebrews? Well, there are a great many applications that we could delve into, but I'm going to leave that for the Spirit. But let me just say that if we walk away with nothing else this evening, we should walk away with this, that in Jesus Christ we have the ultimate superlative revelation of God. Meaning that there's nothing left to reveal but everything we need, everything we could ever want is right there in the Word of God, the living and active Word. And through it, we're presented with the end of all the types and shadows of the Old Testament because here we have the revelation of the eternal Son, the heir of all things who rules the nations with a rod of iron. And the priest who having, having offered up the perfect sacrifice has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, high and lifted up, the prophet greater than Moses, the king of kings and lord of lords who far surpasses any mortal king of Israel or any nation, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Friends, this is the Jesus of Scripture. And really the only worthy question that remains is simply this, do you know this Jesus? Is this Jesus your high priest? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, everything you do and who you are. Lord, we thank you that you speak. We're grateful for that, Lord. We know that unless you had condescended to us that we would never know. Uh, you're so far beyond us, and yet in your grace and your mercy and your goodness, you reveal yourself. We're thankful, Lord, that you have spoken most clearly and definitively in Jesus. Help us to know Him, Lord. Help us to hear this, this uh, speaking to us through the Son. And Lord, we ask that You shape us. Uh, we ask that even in, in trying times, and we know that every generation has its trying time, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful, that we would hold fast, just as these uh, believers of the first century had to hold fast to Christ. So, Lord, help us to do this. Do this work in us. We praise you and we thank you for everything. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you would, I'd ask you to stand with me for the benediction. I've got to switch gears because I didn't have it. But I knew Bobby was going to ask me to do it, so I had it ready. <laughs> the benediction, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, that's it. I know there is uh, lots of good refreshments, so stay.